All right, we're going to be in the book of Judges again this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 6. That's where we've made it up to at this point in our study. Uh, We're in Judges chapter 6, and uh, we're going to cover verses 33 through 40 today. Uh, Just verses 33 through 40. Uh, If you're using our pew Bible there, I believe it's on page 170. If you don't have a Bible, you can consider that our gift to you. You're going to recognize also large numbers and small numbers. The large numbers are chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. So you can follow along with us there. Last week we were introduced to a character. His name is Gideon. And uh, he was from the, if you remember, he was the least member of the weakest tribe in Manasseh. We read about God's call on his life, God's command on his life, and the sign that God gave to Gideon to assure him uh, that he had the power and uh, he was, in fact, God. So he wanted to assure Gideon of his power and of his person. So he followed Gideon as he uh, built an altar to the Lord. And uh, then he had quick obedience to, dare, to tear down uh, the idols of his family, his father's idols, the town's idols, and his own uh, idols, right? So he went uh, in, the, in the middle of the night, he tore down all these idols, uh, and then people wanted to kill him at the end, if you do remember. Uh, but in fact, he didn't die. Uh, he got given a pretty cool nickname, uh, Jerubabal. Uh, which was supposed to point us to uh, the lack of power that these counterfeit gods have, right? That they were completely impotent to do anything for the people. And that name would be a reminder of that uh, to those that would follow Gideon. So this week, as as that's the point where we've kind of come to, uh, we're going to follow again the life of Gideon. And uh, we're going to see a change in him. And so we're going to see him change into this this new person, this new Gideon. But then the the old Gideon is going to quickly reemerge, right? So we're going to see a picture of the new Gideon and the old Gideon. We're going to again deal with the section this week in two parts, the new uh, and the old. So first, the new. Gideon's just torn down the altars and he's received his nickname. And then we come upon verse 33 of chapter 6. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. They crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Israel's enemies have come together. They've crossed the plain. They're camping in the valley. The Midianites and their allies roam the land freely. And they're going to raid Israel at will. They have strong numbers and stronger armies. If you remember, uh, this brings our minds back to early in chapter 6 when we're reminded that Israel was made very low. And for me, some reason, what I've seen of Gideon to this point, I I expect him uh, to perhaps keep his head down. And kind of return to his normal life. After all, the people of the town had just wanted him dead, right? And he wasn't uh, in a hurry to, to have his life at risk again. I wouldn't imagine so. Uh, and so maybe he's rocked the boat enough. But the, yet the narrator reminds us of Israel's oppression. That all Israel's oppression and them being made law also reminds me of Gideon uh, beating out grain in the wine press, right? This is the guy that was hiding. And so what I expect is just a return to the status quo at this point. I expect Gideon to kind of just keep on doing what he was doing. But in remembering that Israel was made low, remembering that they were oppressed, we're also reminded of the verses that God spoke to Gideon in verse 14. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And then in 16, I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So in the brief moments, before we come to verse 34, we're left to wonder in verse 33. Will Gideon, in fact, obey God and strike Midian? Will he become the mighty man of valor, a deliverer of Israel? 
And then we come to verse 34 as we ponder those questions. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And Gideon sounded the trumpet. And the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. Instead of keeping his head down, instead of returning to the status quo, Gideon continues to rock the boat. To my surprise and maybe yours. His faith is hot. And he's clothed with the spirit of God. As he blows the trumpet and gathers an army to himself. Block writes of this. Remarkably, according to verses 34 and 35, when Gideon summons his clansmen, the Abiezrites, to battle against the enemy, the very people that had just called for his death respond to the sound of the ram's horn and prepare for battle. Gideon then extends the call to arms, first to the rest of his own tribe, Manasseh, and then to Manasseh's northern tribal neighbors, those who were also feeling the pressure of the enemy that camped in the Jezreel Valley, Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali. Also remarkable, is that when his messengers deliver his summons, the people respond. So that makes us ask, why would these people be ready to follow Gideon, who had just torn down their idols? This was the guy that was hiding in the wine press, least of the least. Why would they want to follow this guy? Was it his courage or his natural leadership ability? Maybe his stunning good looks? I think not. I think the answer is uh, more likely in the fact that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. See, God was empowering him, despite his weakness, to accomplish the task to which he had been called. God had called Gideon and commanded him. Now he was equipping him and supplying what he needed to go about God's purpose for him. The man who hid himself in the wine press now blew the trumpet and summoned his countrymen to war. The man who was hiding is now leading an army against the enemy. Gideon's faith and passion are white hot. God is working and Gideon seems ready to carry out his will. This point that God will always equip us to accomplish the tasks that he's called us to, that he always supplies the power that his people need to be obedient to his will, uh, is one that I want to flesh out a little bit. Because as followers of Jesus, we too have been called to various tasks by God, right? We're called to live in community with one another. We're to strengthen one another. We're to show compassion and to care for the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the unloved, and the unvalued. We're to steward our gifts in order to bring blessing to others. We're to be God's ambassadors to the world. We're to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So let me ask you this morning, uh, how are you doing with the tasks that God has assigned to you? How are you stewarding your gifts? How are you representing Jesus? I also think it's pertinent to to point out that one task has been shared with all of us. You know, with our gifts, we steward them in different ways. And so we have uh, various ways of, uh, I guess, ministering to one another. But there's a particular task that uh, everyone who has called on the name of Christ and uh, takes the name of Christ onto themselves, everybody that would call themselves a Christian uh, is called to. And that is the command to make disciples of all nations. And I'm sure you're familiar with that great commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And then as a result, he says, My disciples are to make, uh, are to make other disciples of all nations. All authority means that there is no country, no culture, no people that are beyond the authority of Jesus. Therefore, no culture, no country, no people are beyond this great commission. Jesus is exalted over every culture. 
and every religion with an absolute authority. He lays absolute claim on every person in every place. And therefore, we proclaim his rule and reign. We proclaim this good news, this gospel. And we do it by making disciples. And when we make disciples, we bid people to come and die to their old destructive ways and to live for Jesus, who loved them and gave himself for them. We should make the gospel known. We should long to make our king, Jesus, known. I think J.I. Packer points out two excellent reasons why uh, we ought to be motivated to do this. The first is love for God and concern for his glory. We want to share the gospel because we love God and we're concerned about his glory being made great in the world. The second is uh, love for man and concern for his welfare. We want to love our neighbors. and We want them to know God because that's what's best for their lives. It should remind you as it reminds me of the great commandment in Mark 12, 29, where uh, Jesus tells us that we should love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, God is glorified when we love our neighbors by making the truth about him known. As Paul says in Romans 10, how will anyone know the gospel unless we preach it? So how are you doing it living this out? How are you doing it accomplishing this task? How are you encouraging your friends, your neighbors, your family to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ? How are you proclaiming his gospel. You know, often when uh, we first become Christians uh, and encounter God and, and his grace is fresh in our minds, the answer to these questions is just a resounding yes. Like, I am being obedient. I'm talking about Jesus all the time. His name's on my lips. And everybody that I'm in any kind of relationship with knows that I love him and that he's my Lord. And we're just kind of like Gideon, right? Like, we have white-hot passion, ready to fulfill the task that the Lord has given to us. And then as time goes on, that passion cools dramatically. We stop sharing our faith for, I imagine, a variety of reasons. Uh, Fear of rejection, uh, fear that we won't be able to answer all the questions that somebody has about God. And there are a lot of questions about God, aren't they? Maybe we're too lazy. Or I think this one uh, might be uh, one that's more prevalent just because we're not really sure how to share our faith. And we're afraid to ask, hey, I love Jesus, but how do I go about this? Can you help me to somebody that uh, would be able to equip us to share our faith? So which one of these is your excuse this morning? Maybe you have a unique one that I didn't list. What's, What's your excuse? Because God will provide all that you need to accomplish all the tasks that he calls you to do all of your life. Will you make Jesus known this week? Will you step out in the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaim Christ? Will you ask him to make your passion fresh, to make it white hot? If indeed it has gone cold. Has your passion gone cold? You know, cooling passion is not unknown among Christians, as we've said. and In fact, it's not unknown even in the Bible, even in the life of Gideon. We've seen the emboldened Gideon, the new Gideon, who's clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, who summons an army. But now in verse 36, we see the cooling of his passion. We see the return of the old Gideon. 
verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, note this, as you have said, so he knows that God has said that he'll save Israel by his hand. If you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a whole bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. So he knows that this is probably going to make God a little angry, right? Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. Block writes. These verses catch the reader totally by surprise. Even though Gideon has been empowered by Yahweh and is surrounded by a vast army of troops, he hesitates. He continues to test God with demands for signs. This time specifically for the assurance that God will indeed use him to provide deliverance for the nation. As he has promised. As he has said. The latter expression, which occurs twice in verses 36 and 37, is the key to this text. Contrary to the popular interpretation that this text is a way of discovering or determining the will of God, it is not. It has nothing to do with discovering or determining the will of God. The divine will of God is perfectly clear in Gideon's mind. Look back at verse 16. His problem is that with his limited experience of God, He cannot believe that God always fulfills his word. He does not believe. The request for signs is not a sign of faith, but of unbelief. Despite being clear about what the will of God is and being empowered by the spirit of God and being confirmed as the divinely chosen leader by the overwhelming response of his countrymen to his own summons to battle, he uses every means available to try and get out of the mission to which he's been called. The emboldened Gideon has somehow become insecure and unsure of his call and task. His unbelief, I imagine, as he was sitting there, probably took the form of some disbelieving questions, right? Will God really keep his promise? Am I really a mighty man of valor? Maybe all this has just been dumb luck, right? I just got lucky that those guys didn't kill me after all. My dad went out and spoke on my behalf and Maybe I just got a little emotional there, blowing the trumpet and sending messengers. I mean, after all, there is a pretty, pretty vast army uh, camps down in the valley over there. And I'm not overexcited about people wanting to kill me. Uh, it's not, not a lot of fun. Gideon knows what God has said, but he does not believe it. Unbelief has crept in. And unbelief is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, and it is sin. Paul tells us in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then we learn in Hebrews 11, 6, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Gideon's desire to test God is evidence of his disbelief of God, of his unbelief. He knows that it isn't pleasing to God. He even asked God in verse 39, right? Don't let your anger burn against me. His testing of God is sinful. Just as Israel's testing of God 
was sinful when they were in the wilderness. Asaph writes of this in Psalm 78, verses 18 through 22. This is what they say. They tested, that's Israel, God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. But can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power. Likewise, Gideon is testing God with his heart and with his fleece. God was able to use me to tear down the idols of my people and raise an army. But can he also provide deliverance for his people? Gideon knows what God has said. Mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. Save Israel from the hand of Midian. I will be with you as you strike down the Midianites as one man. Yet now he disbelieves and wishes to test God. Like Israel, he does not believe in God and does not trust his saving power. Can you relate to this? Do you ever try to test God? I mean, I've done this a couple times. God, if you want me to do X, Y, or Z, then let this happen. Give me a sign. Have you ever wrestled with believing what God has said? Now, this is a difficult thing uh, to recognize and to turn from, these forms of unbelief. But thankfully, God is patient with us, right? Exponentially gracious to us. Think about what areas of your life you are struggling to believe God in. How are you struggling to believe him and to submit about what he said? Gideon's struggle of faith reminds me not only of my own life, uh, but I think a a better example might be uh, from Scripture, some of the lives that I've seen in the characters we come across. I immediately think of Thomas in uh, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28. Uh, You're probably familiar with Thomas. He's typically called Doubting Thomas. Uh, think, man, you, you mess up one time and you just get labeled for life, right? How would you like to be called doubting, you know, doubting John? Like, I, I just thought, man, that's not any good. Anyhow, Thomas, here in verse 24, we read, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into the place of his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas knew what Jesus had said, but had refused to believe it. Jesus gently corrects Thomas's sinful unbelief with a compassionate and graceful placing of his hands in his side. He answers this test, allowing him to see the marks of the nails that put his fingers in his side. But 
look closely, the story doesn't end here. Uh, Verse 29, uh, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And then verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. I think this summarizes the main purpose that John is writing and uh, why we have the scriptures. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes verse 31 that we may believe. So I think that it should be pointed out that faith, believing, is not separate from what is factual, what is actual, what is true. Faith is not separate from reason or evidence. Disbelieving God is sinful, right? But gathering evidence and using uh, our faculties of reason to determine what is true and what is not true, that's not sinful. That's faith. That's faithful. We should test these things to find out what is true. You see, there's a difference between questions about God and disbelieving God. Questioning God is an attempt to learn more about what is true. Disbelieving or doubting God is an attempt to deny what is true. See the difference between the two, the the heart behind the questions? One is an attempt to learn more about God, and the other is an attempt to deny what is true about God. It's important to find out what is actually true because this is crucial for our faith, right? The value of faith actually turns upon the trustworthiness of faith's object. If you believe something untrue, then your faith is futile. For instance, if you believe that Elvis is still alive, guess what? Your faith is futile. You can believe, believe, believe. But guess what? Reality is Elvis is dead and your faith is in vain. See, biblical faith is built upon truth claims, believing facts. But it's, it's more than that, right? It's not just believing facts and intellectually assenting to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's trusting Christ with our whole lives. It's following him. It's believing by faith. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15, where in verse 6, he tells his readers to verify his story. He's talked about the gospel, and he says, check it out. Jesus has appeared to more than 500 people. Ask them. They'll verify it. He has risen. And then later in that same chapter in Corinthians, Paul tells us in verse 17, if Jesus didn't raise, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. The value of faith turns upon the trustworthiness of faith's object. Since we're uh, on the subject of unbelief, I I can't help but think of the man in uh, Mark 9. Perhaps you know this story. Uh, There's a man and an evil spirit is uh, within his son. And whenever it kind of overtakes his son, it throws him down. And his son foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes very, very rigid. And this man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. To which I like to, like Jesus responds, but I like to think it's kind of like, if, come on, if, this is what what Jesus actually says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then this is what, I love the man's response to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals his son. 
You see, despite Gideon's unbelief and Thomas's unbelief and the man in Mark 9's unbelief and our own unbelief, God has compassion on us when we cry to him. I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus heals us from our sins. He fills up our faith. Likely you have all had moments like Gideon. I have. We all have likely asked questions rooted in unbelief in an attempt to deny what is true. Am I really a child of God? Is what he has said about me really true? When we do, we can uh, take heart that Jesus will help that. In fact, he died to save us from our own unbelief, to save us from sin. So that when we're tempted to test God and to lay out the fleece of our life, we can instead turn our faces towards Calvary's hill and remember the cross. We can raise our hands in praise as we remember the empty tomb. God keeps his promises. He has reconciled men to himself despite their sin, despite their unbelief. He has helped by dying in their place. Dying the death that we all should have died. And living the perfect life that we were all supposed to live. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. He has risen indeed. The faith of Gideon and of Thomas and of the man in Mark. And maybe your own. It's weak. But it's saving. In fact, Gideon is remembered in Hebrews 11 for his faith. See, it's not the measure or the amount of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. Jesus, who helps our unbelief. He who has the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. It is not the amount of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Jesus. So I have only one question this morning as we prepare to reflect and sing our hymn of invitation. Friends, non-Christian Christian, will you ask Jesus to help your unbelief this morning?